You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. You know, there's actually been two points in history when the prophecies of Daniel have had the most extreme and pressing relevance when its message has been a message of the utmost exigency. One of those was in AD 70, when the Jewish world was about to be destroyed. And it was an understanding of the prophecy of Daniel, as highlighted by our Lord, that allowed some of our brothers and sisters to escape from the destruction that came upon the city of Jerusalem. But the other of those time periods is today. Because we live at the time of the end, which is spoken of so clearly by the prophet Daniel. Words that were spoken 2,500 years ago. And, And if in this, in the latter days of his prophecy, we want to be ready for the return of our Lord, then we need to understand and to assimilate the prophecies of Daniel. Because they speak clearly and categorically of our time. So the objective of this book is to inform and encourage the saints and to strengthen their faith. Now, the book of Daniel is a very colorful book, isn't it? It's a book with remarkable tales of fortitude. We have a lion's den. We've got the fiery furnace. We've got a narrow escape for Daniel and his friends in the day of uh, Daniel chapter two, when Nebuchadnezzar was going to kill them all. It's a book that's full of visions, and in fact, we could call them nightmares. It's a book with beasts. There's a goat, a lion, a leopard, a ram. It's a book with time periods in it. There's 1290 days. There's a period of 1260 days. There's a 1335 days. There's a seven times or 2520 days. So if we look at the book of Daniel, it's certainly a very rich tapestry. Now, I used to think that the book of Daniel was like a game of two halves, that it had a bunch of very interesting stories and incidents for people of remarkable faith at a time of trial. And then as if as a quite separate thing, it had a whole series of some really complex prophecies in it. And I've more recently come to appreciate that actually it's a book which is a seamless whole, that the stories, the actual incidents that are recorded are also symbolic events. Sure, they're real events that happened, but they themselves are events that are highly charged with a message for God's people, messages for the saints that would live in the times that are defined in that book. So let's take, for example, the incident of Daniel chapter 3, the story of the fiery furnace. Absolutely, it's a tale of remarkable faith and courage. But it's also absolutely about how God saves those, all those, who refuse to worship the system of the beast. And how their terrible persecution would ultimately be turned into their triumph. How? through the involvement of one like the Son of Man, who delivers them from that fiery trial. So yes, it's a very highly charged message for the saints who down through history would be persecuted by the little horn, worn out by the little horn, given into his hand as the words of chapter 7 are. Or let's take the words of Daniel chapter 6. Yes, it's the story of Daniel and the lion's den. It's a story of remarkable, resolute steadfastness. A man who kept praying to his God, even when he was forbidden to do so. It's also the story of how all of those who are faithful refuse to stop worshipping the true God, even if they're forbidden to do so. They will be persecuted, but God has the power to deliver their soul from the lion. And if we think about it, you can see how those two stories, Daniel chapter 3 on one hand and and Daniel chapter 6 on the other, 
are at the same time equal and opposites. In one, we have a group of people who refuse to stop worshipping the true God. And in the other, we have some, a group of people who refuse to worship the false gods. So both of these are two very powerful message for the saints. They refuse to worship false gods, and they never stop worshipping the one true God. But in fact, it's even more than that. If we think about this, the, the incident of, of Daniel in the lion's den for a moment, we see in the weakness of a king who sorrowed greatly, but still had to put Daniel in the lion's den, we see a depiction of the, the weakness of Pharaoh, oh, sorry, of Pilate, who was coerced by the Jews to put the Lord Jesus Christ to death. Or in the shutting of the lion's mouths in Daniel chapter 6, we have the psalm of the crucifixion. Psalm 22, verse 21, save me from the lion's mouth. So these are not just random incidents of faith. They're actually woven into the book. They're a fundamental part of the message and the theme of the book as a whole. And every facet of this book is complementary to its main aim. And that is to prepare the saints for faithfulness throughout their life preparing ultimately for the time of the end. All right, well, let's get a bit of an overview, first of all, of the structure of the book itself. So I'm just going to share my screen, and hopefully it will come up nice and clearly. So here we have just simply a record of the, of the chapters itself, and the breakdown of it. What do we start with? Well, we start in chapter one with the sack of Jerusalem and the fact that they would not be defiled by the king's meat. In Daniel chapter 2, we have the story of Nebuchadnezzar's image and the vision of Nebuchadnezzar. By the time we get to chapter 3, we have Nebuchadnezzar making his own golden image, and we have the incident of the fiery furnace. In Daniel chapter 4, we have Nebuchadnezzar's vision of the great tree which was cut down and banded, speaking of what would happen to him and to his empire. In Daniel chapter 5, we have Belshazzar's arrogant feast, we have the writing of the hand on the wall and the end of the Babylonian Empire. Daniel chapter 6, we have Daniel who persists in praying to his one true God, even though he was forbidden and the incident of the lion's den. In chapter 7, we have the vision of the four beasts that come out of the great sea, which ultimately focus on the little horn of the fourth beast. In chapter 8, we have the ram and the he-goat and another little horn that arises on the he-goat, but of course not to be confused with the little horn of Daniel chapter 7. In chapter 9, we have Daniel's magnificent prayer, and in response, we have the beautiful words of the 70 weeks prophecy. And then from chapter 10 through to chapter 12, we have the thing. Now, I'm not sure if you've ever heard it being referred to as the thing before. It's actually a phrase that Brother Thomas uses. I think it's in um, Exposition of Daniel that I came across it. And it was a, a little expression that intrigued me. But I'll, I'll get you to come with me a little aside to Daniel chapter 10, because we find that Daniel 10, 11, and 12 are all actually one particular vision uh, without break between them. It just flows right through. So chapter 10 through 12 is actually the last vision of the book. And if we look at the way it's referred to in chapter 10 and verse 1, in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a thing was revealed unto Daniel, whose name was called Belteshazzar. And the thing was true, but the time appointed was long. And he understood the thing and had understanding of the vision. So this thing that's referred to in chapter 10 is a succession uh, of, of themes that come out in the one vision. It starts in chapter 10 with the vision of the multitudinous Christ as, a, as one or a certain man. In chapter 11, we have from the, um, the Persian on into the Greek and then on into the kings of the north and south, ultimately resulting in the setting up of God's kingdom. And in chapter 12, we have deliverance of God's people, both of the saints and also of Israel themselves. So that's a, just a list of the chapters of the book. But then if we 
if we start to helicopter and, and just look at the book as a whole, a few things start to emerge, some rather interesting things. The first is that actually the book focuses on two different audiences and it breaks down into two rather neat halves. So the first half of the book, chapters one through six, are actually rather public. They're events that are quite public events that take place in Babylon. So in chapter one, we have the friends who refuse to defile themselves with the king's meat. We have the incident, chapter three, of the fiery furnace and the king's decree. Chapter six, of course, the king's decree and the lion's den. And then we have the visions of the kings. So we have Nebuchadnezzar's visions in chapter two and chapter four. And then we have the vision of the hand writing on the wall in chapter five. These are all what you could call public events that are, involve other people and the kings of the nation of Babylon. If we look at the second half, we find that it's actually a private audience because chapters seven through 12 are all visions which are revealed to Daniel himself personally in private. Chapter seven, the vision of the beasts, chapter eight, the ram and the he goat, chapter nine, the 70 weeks prophecy, chapter 10, the one man of glory, chapter 11, the kings of the north and south and on into chapter 12 as well. So the book does break into two halves based upon their prospective audiences. But there's another particular feature of the book, which I'd like us to focus on now. It's actually a very striking feature of the book of Daniel. And that's the fact that the prophecy of Daniel is written very specifically and very deliberately in two different languages. So the book commences written in Hebrew and it's written in Hebrew from chapter one, verse one through to chapter two and verse four. And in fact, let's have a quick look at Daniel chapter two, verse four. And we can see the way in which it actually changes. So it's written in Hebrews right up to verse three. And then in verse four of Daniel chapter two, then spake the Chaldeans unto the king in Syriac. Now, Syriac is another name for the language that's sometimes called Aramaic and sometimes called Chaldee, the language of the Chaldeans. And from that point on in the book, it's all written in Syriac or Aramaic right through to the end of chapter seven, chapter seven, verse 28. And then remarkably, when we get to chapter eight and verse one, suddenly the book reverts back to Hebrew again. And from that point, chapter eight, verse one, right through to chapter 12, verse 13, the remainder of the book is all written in Hebrew. Now, why Aramaic for the middle section? Well, Aramaic was what they call the lingua franca or the common language of the empire. It was an empire, of course, that had very diverse parts and very diverse languages. And Aramaic was the common language which was able to be used to unite and control all people. And in fact, this theme of language becomes an interesting sub-theme of the book as we have a, a clash of cultures. So in Daniel chapter one, when we have the, uh, the faithful young men, the four friends who are brought from Jerusalem into the area of Babylon, there is a conflict of languages here. So in the end, of, if we look at chapter one and verse four, these were children in whom was no blemish. They're well favored and skillful in all wisdom, cunning in knowledge and understanding science, such as in their, had ability in them, to whom they might teach the learning and the tongue of the Chaldeans or Aramaic. So one of the specific things they wanted to do was teach them the language or the tongue of Aramaic or Syriac or Chaldee. And in fact, they gave them names in that language as well. And then of course we find in, in verse, in, um, sorry, if we a little later in, in the book, we also find that um, in verse, Sorry, in, in verse four, they have the teaching of the, the, the language and the tongue of the Chaldeans. And then by the time we get to chapter two, verse four, we have them speaking in that same language. And, and that then becomes the language uh, of the rest of the book through to chapter eight and verse one. So this is a rather deliberate change. And the question that we have to answer right at the outset is, well, why is that? Well, in chapter one, we have a group of Hebrew boys who are taken from the land of Israel 
and they refuse defilement. When we then have a look at chapter 2 through chapter 7, we have a succession of prophecies and incidents which involve the Babylonian kings. And that section is written in a Gentile tongue, in Syriac or Aramaic. When we get to chapter 8 and verse 1, we find that the focus of the book changes. Yes, chapter 8 is another vision, and yes, it is linked to the visions of the beasts in chapter 7, as we have new beasts introduced in chapter 8, the ram and the he-goat. But something else rather interesting happens in Daniel chapter 8, and that is that the focus of the prophecy now reverts back to particularly the influence of those empires on the pleasant land. So, for example, in Daniel chapter 8 and verse 9, we have references to the pleasant land. In verse 11, we find, <clears throat> excuse me, that it's talking about the end of the daily sacrifices and the destruction of the sanctuary. Verse 13, it's the vision of the daily sacrifice. In verse 26, it's the vision of the evening and the morning. Again, a reference to the daily sacrifices. And we find that actually from chapter 8, verse 1 onwards, the focus is on the land of Israel and on the role of the saints and the restoration of the people of Israel themselves. And so, rather fittingly, it reverts back to Hebrew again. Then if we actually look at the, the middle section, the section which is in Aramaic, the section of the Gentiles, another interesting thing that stands out is that it's actually structured by way of a chiastic structure. Now, you're probably familiar with the idea of chiasms and how they work, and that it's a technique that God has used in Scripture. Uh, the Scriptures, of course, were read orally. People could listen to them uh, orally, and, and they could learn and remember based on the words which were listened to rather than the words which they had the opportunity to read themselves personally. And there are a number of different literary structures or techniques that are used to make the scriptures not just able to be remembered, but also to focus our attention on the key issues. And we find that chias chiasms or chiastic structures are an element of this, where we have an element or a theme which is introduced at the beginning of a section, and it's used to conclude the section. Then if we step inside those, the second theme that's introduced is also the theme that's the second to final theme, and so on, until we move down through the structure and we focus on the key uh, idea, the germ of the section which we are to be focusing on. And this section, the, the Aramaic section in the book of Daniel, does exactly that. So chapter 2, it begins with a vision of the four kingdoms, and we know, don't we, how in chapter 7, the vision of the four kingdoms is conveyed by the beasts. And you can see how those two mirror each other. If we then step down on those structures, uh, we find the second theme is the martyr story from Daniel chapter 3, which has its corresponding uh, theme of the martyr story of Daniel and the lion's den in chapter 6. Chapter 4, we have Nebuchadnezzar's pride and Yahweh's sovereignty. In chapter 5, the corresponding section, we have Belshazzar's pride and Yahweh's sovereignty once more. And the central part, the golden kernel of that section, is the end of chapter 4 as it moves to chapter 5. And the final statement of Daniel chapter 4, Daniel 4 and verse 37, is, and I'll just read it to you. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all whose works are truth and his ways judgment. And those that walk in pride, he is able to abase. And that's the, the grand theme that comes out of that entire midsection of the book. Good. Okay, so that gives us a little bit of, a, of an overview in terms of the structure of the book. Let's ask ourselves now the question, well, what's the book actually about? So let's allow the book itself and its opening words to tell us. Let's go and read together from Daniel chapter 1 and verse 1. Because, you know, Daniel chapter 1 verse 1 is not just an introduction. It's not just uh, giving us some useful time periods which might help us to understand the book. It does much more than that. It introduces the theme of the book itself. So what do we read? Daniel chapter 1 and verse 1. In the third year, 
of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, came Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, unto Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with part of the vessels of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God. So what are our basic elements? Well, we have Babylon and a king. And we have Jerusalem and a king. And we have a conflict between those two. And the king of Babylon destroys the city of Jerusalem and removes its king. Hmm. You may have heard people say that the book of Daniel is about a conflict between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of men. And certainly those opening verses seem to indicate that, don't they? Daniel chapter 1 and verse 1. Well, let's test that. Let's go to chapter 2. How does it start? In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar dreamed dreams. So this is the reign of the king of Babylon. Verse 2, then the king commanded. All right, let's have a look at chapter 3, verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar the king. Chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar the king unto all people. Chapter 5, Belshazzar the king makes a great feast. Chapter 6, it actually begins in chapter 5, verse 30. And that night was Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans slain. Darius the Median took the kingdom. Chapter 6, verse 1, it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom. All right, chapter 7, verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. Chapter 8, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar. Chapter 9, verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the seed of Media, which was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. And chapter 10, which begins our last section, in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia. Well, that's rather obvious, isn't it? Every one of the sections of the prophecy of Daniel begin with a reference to these kings. In fact, this book only has 12 chapters. But in that those 12 chapters, we find that references to kings and kingdoms come up some 166 times. There are kings of Babylon. There are kings of Persia. There's a king of Grecia. There's kings of the north. There's kings of the south. This is a book which is just full of references to kings and kingdoms. In fact, it's interesting, you know, in Daniel chapter 2 and verse 37, Nebuchadnezzar is called the king of kings. Now, why is that interesting? Because, of course, in Revelation 17 and verse 14, that is a title which is used in reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. We have contrasting supreme monarchs. So clearly, kingship is important. But is it really a conflict between these kings and their dominion versus God and his dominion? Well, Daniel 2, verse 44, in the days of these kings, shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. And then the theme starts to come very strongly out of the book. So Daniel chapter 4, verse 17, this matter is by the decree of the watchers and the demand by the word of the holy ones to the intent that the living may know that the most high ruleth in the kingdom of men and giveth it to whomsoever he will and setteth up over it the basest of men. It's a message which is repeated again in verse 25 and again in verse 32. In fact, the Babylonian kings themselves are forced to acknowledge that. Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel 4, verse 34. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes unto heaven. Mine understanding returned to me. I blessed the Most High and I praised and honoured him that liveth forever and ever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom is from generation to generation. A Persian king, Darius, is forced to acknowledge the same thing. 
Daniel 6, verse 26, I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom, men tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and steadfast forever. And his kingdom, that which shall not be destroyed, and his dominion shall be even unto the end. All right, let's have a look at Daniel chapter 7. What's God's plan? Well, in Daniel chapter 7, the Son of Man is brought before the Ancient of Days. One like the Son of Man is brought through the Ancient of Days. And in verse 14, there's given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. Or again in verse 27, the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Do you get the point? It's overwhelming, isn't it? This entire book is all about kings and dominions and particularly a conflict between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. Who will have the lasting dominion? Now, there's something rather interesting about this phrase, which comes up three times in Daniel chapter 4. I'll just read it rather carefully. To the intent that the living may know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men and giveth it to whomsoever he will. Now, note very carefully there that it's a reference to a singular kingdom, the kingdom of men. He gives it to whomsoever he will. We know in Daniel chapter 2 and verse 35 that the, the metals and the, the, uh, the composite materials of the image in Daniel chapter 2 are all broken in pieces together. And in fact, we find that in both chapter 2 and chapter 7, that the components, all of the components exist together at the time of the end. It is one image with composite parts representing different phases and aspects of the one kingdom of men. And that's why, for example, Brother Thomas in the exposition of Daniel says the following, the kingdom of men has been diversified in its constitution, extent, and throne since its foundation by Nimrod to the present time. It has nevertheless been the same Nimrodian kingdom with Babylon and Assyria for its characteristics. So yes, there's a conflict between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. But you know, this conflict did not just start on the 18th of July, 586 BC, when the city of Jerusalem was taken by Nebuchadnezzar. No, this is a very old conflict, a very old conflict. You know, it was no random sacking that just happened to be done by the kingdom of Babylon, who coincidentally happened to be the dominant empire of the time. Now, this is a part of the Immaculate Plan and the Kingdom of God. Now, we've been talking about a conflict between the Kingdom of Man and the Kingdom of God. Question, when was the very first Kingdom of Man ever referred to in Scripture? When's it first mentioned in the Bible? And the answer is in Genesis chapter 10. So let's go back and have a look at that. And when we go back to Genesis chapter 10 and we find the very first kingdom mentioned in the Bible, where was it based? And the answer is in Babylon. They say, aha, that's an interesting coincidence, isn't it? This is no accident. So in Genesis chapter 10, we have a reference to the man Nimrod. And I'd like us to read the record quite carefully. We're going to start in verse 7 with references to Cush's family, and I'd like you to read very carefully verses 7 and 8 and see if you notice something rather unusual about the, uh, the, the, the details here in Cush's family. So verse 7, the sons of Cush, Seba and Havilah 
and Saba and Rayama, Sabtikar, and the sons of Rayama, Sheba and Dedan. And Cush begat Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one in the earth. Do you notice the rather unusual feature of the description of Cush's family? It describes his sons in verse 7. And then all of a sudden, in a separate category of its own, it describes another son. And it says, oh, and Cush begat Nimrod. Now, that's an unusual way to describe his family. You know, the interesting thing is that genealogy is also referred to in First of Chronicles, chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. And the record there does exactly the same thing. So this chap, Nimrod, is distinguished from the rest of the sons of Cush. The record goes on to say in verse 8 that Nimrod began to be a mighty one in the earth. It's the Hebrew word gibor. So the ESV says that Nimrod was the first on earth to be a mighty man. So here is a man who's recreating the race of the giants, as it were, from before the, uh, the flood, the mighty men of renown before the flood. The record in Genesis 10 goes on to say of Nimrod that he was a mighty hunter before Yahweh. And in fact, that's so notable that it gets repeated. Wherefore, <coughs> excuse me, wherefore it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before Yahweh. So this, this feature of Nimrod is emphasized by the record. And, and actually it becomes proverbial. It becomes a saying, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before Yahweh. Now this phrase before Yahweh Panim in his presence or before his face. It's a, a phrase that's used in scripture of things that are done in the presence of God. Sometimes they're positive things. So, for example, all of the worship in the tabernacle is described as being done before Yahweh, Panim, in his presence. But it's also a phrase that's used of those who are wicked, defiantly, in the face of God. So, for example, Genesis chapter 13 and verse 13 says that the men of Sodom were wicked and sinners before Yahweh exceedingly. Open, barefaced defiance. And it was noted by other people. And they spoke of it. It became proverbial. Oh, he's the mighty hunter in the face of Yahweh. And it was this man, this powerful Gibor, this great warrior who founded the first kingdom of men in verse 10. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, or as your margin probably says, is Babylon. Now, what are the characteristics of this Babylon kingdom, the kingdom of Babel, that he founded? And if we turn over the page to chapter 11, we have the story of the Tower of Babel. And it's interesting to note the characteristics of this this power of Babel that was founded by Nimrod. First of all, its key features are, it's located in verse two in the land of Shinar. There they make a tower, which is going to reach up into heaven itself. They're going to compete with God. In verse four, they want to make themselves a name. This is about power, about ascendancy, about having a name for themselves. In fact, those towers later become centers of false worship, the temples of the worship of Babylon in its culture and in its history. So brothers and sisters and young people, it is no coincidence in Daniel chapter 1 verse 1 that it's the king of Babylon who comes and takes the treasures of God's house to his temple. And it says in Daniel chapter 1 that he carried them into the land of Shinar. He changed the names of the Jewish boys. He taught them his language. Interesting in the context, isn't it, of Genesis chapter 11. If we go back briefly to Genesis chapter 10, we find that Babylon wasn't the only place which Nimrod founded. Verse 11 reads, out of the land, <clears throat> out of that land went forth Asher and builded Nineveh. Or as the margin says, he went into the land of Assyria and built Nineveh. Excuse me. 
Young's Literal translates verse 11, from that land he hath gone out to Asher and buildeth Nineveh, even the broad places of the city. So what's Nineveh? Well, Nineveh is the capital city of the kingdom of Assyria, who turned out to be one of Israel's most potent foes. So this man, Nimrod, founded a double-headed empire, Babylon and Nineveh, the roots of the Assyrian and Babylonian empires. So yes, this kingdom has very old roots. Now, from that time onwards, there was a very close association between the kingdom of Assyria and the kingdom of Babylon. They often fought each other, but they are always closely associated together in the record. So let's have a look at an example of that. If we have a look, let's go to the book of Daniel now. Daniel chapter 7, we have reference to the, the first beast of the four beasts in Daniel chapter 7. Now, this first beast is described as being like a lion, and it has two very distinct phases. Daniel chapter 7, and we'll pick up the record in verse 4. The first of these beasts was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I beheld till the wings thereof were plucked. And it was lifted up from the earth and made stand upon the feet as a man, and a man's heart was given to it. And it represents the first empire to come and conquer and remove Israel's kingdom. But it's a dual beast because it has two distinct phases. It has a phase where it has wings, and that phase represents the Assyrians. And then the wings are plucked off, and it stands on its feet, and it's given the heart of a man. And that second phase represents the Babylonians. Now, wings are used in, in Scripture as a symbol of swiftness, the swiftness of conquest. But in its second phase, it's given a man's heart. Now, sometimes it's suggested that the giving of the man's heart was to show that the Babylonians were more humane. In a sense, that's correct. The Assyrians were gratuitously cruel. You've only got to look at the depiction in the British Museum uh, of the siege of Lachish, uh, which was used as wallpaper by one of the Assyrian kings in his, in, his, in his palace to commemorate his torture of the inhabitants of Lachish to see that, yes, the Assyrians were very cruel. But, you know, I don't think the Babylonians were particularly renowned for the humane kindness and compassion. I mean, for example, Zedekiah, who had his sons slain before his eyes, and then his eyes poked out, probably didn't see them as being particularly compa compassionate. But actually, and this is a little bit of an aside, but there's a scriptural theme happening here. Because this concept of a lion that's on all fours, and then goes upright and has a man's heart given to it, actually has its parallel in what happens to King Nebuchadnezzar. It's an aside, but a fascinating one to look at when his, his reason turns to him again. A, a time when his hair had grown like eagle's feathers, like the, the feathers of eagle's wings. And there's a very interesting parallel happening there in the story of Daniel chapter 4. All right, well, a question for us. Are we correct in identifying this lion of Daniel chapter 7 with the Assyrio-Babylonian power? Well, certainly that works if you look at the parallel between chapter 7 and chapter 2. The first empire in both cases involves the empire of Babylon. So we're on target with that. But what about the words of Jeremiah chapter 50 and verse 17? Israel is a scattered sheep. The lions have driven him away. First, the king of Assyria hath devoured him. And last, this Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, hath broken his bones. So it's very clear that actually the power of the lions was first Assyria and then Babylon. And when they dug up the ruins of Nineveh, what did they find? Well, they found as symbols a combination of a lion, an ox, and a human that, that sat either side of some of the gates of the city. A power which is represented by a lion. You notice there the lion's claws and the long lion table and yet a tail, but you've got the, the head there of a man. And look at the wings on this winged lion. And, you know, it doesn't take a genius to understand the linkage between these things which they uh, uncovered, the archaeologists uncovered in the city of Nineveh, to the biblical references here in Daniel chapter 7. So that's the foundation of the kingdom of man. Nimrod, 
Babylon and Assyria. And that spirit has prevailed ever since, hasn't it? It's characterized the kingdom of man ever since. But the big question for us now is, what's the relevance of this to the book of Daniel? Why is this theme so important in the book of Daniel? And, you know, as it turns out, brothers and sisters and young people, we couldn't have chosen a more apt or a more significant time in history to make this theme clear. But to understand why, there's a little bit of background that we need to have. One of the questions we asked at the time of a baptismal interview is, has the kingdom of God existed on earth before? And the answer, perhaps somewhat surprisingly at first, is yes, it actually has. So if we look at a couple of passages, what do we have here? Well, yes, the kingdom of God has existed. First of Chronicles 28 verse 5, and of all my sons, Yahweh hath given me many sons. He hath chosen Solomon, my son, to sit upon, and notice this word, the throne of the kingdom of Yahweh over Israel. It's repeated in chapter 29 and verse 23, the throne of Yahweh. Or in verse 1 Samuel 8 verse 7, Yahweh says to Samuel, hearken to the voice of the people that have not rejected thee, they've rejected me, that I should not reign over them. That's why, for example, in Acts chapter 1 and verse 6, the disciples asked the, the Lord saying, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? So yes. There is no, no doubt about the fact that the kingdom of God has existed before in the land of Israel. So when God brought Israel out of Egypt, he founded them in the land as a nation. He was setting up the kingdom of God on earth. He gave them a land. He gave them a constitution. He gave them the Mosaic law. He established them as a nation. He established a monarchy. It was his throne. The kingdom of God was set up on earth. And it all ended. It all ended in Daniel chapter 1 and verse 1. First of all, Nebuchadnezzar besieged the city and took it. And Jehoiakim was given into his hand. Nebuchadnezzar took vessels from the house of God. Then he came back and removed Jehoiachin after three months reign. Finally, he came back and removed Zedekiah. And at that point, he burnt the city of God and its temple, and he shut the monarchy down. Remember these words of Ezekiel 21, verse 25? Thou profane wicked prince of Israel, whose day has come when iniquity shall have an end, thus saith the Lord Yahweh, remove the diadem and take off the crown. This shall not be the same. Exalt him that is low, abase him that is high, I will overturn, overturn, overturn it, and it shall be no more until he come whose right it is, and I will give it him. And the monarchy was gone. And it's never been back for 2,606 years and rising. And this is where it all ended at that point in Daniel chapter 1 and verse 1. So can you see why it's so appropriate to have the book of Daniel and its prophecies about the conflict between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man at that particular time in history? Because the kingdom of man, unbelievably, the kingdom of man had prevailed against the kingdom of God. It was momentous. It was huge. It was monstrous. Who would have thought that that could ever be possible? that the kingdom of man could prevail against the kingdom of God. So if we look at a time chart here, what do we have? Well, on the left-hand side of the screen, we have the kingdom of God established with a Jewish monarchy. The first yellow uh, bubble there, the throne is removed from Judah in BC 586 by Babylon. We then have the period of the kingdom of men for some 2,600 years. Until ultimately, when Christ returns, the God of heaven will set up his kingdom again. And the period of time covered by Daniel's prophecies is the duration of the kingdom of men. From the time when the kingdom of God came to an end to the time when the kingdom of God will prevail once more. So this book deals with the power of the kingdom of man 
in all its phases, from the moment it prevailed down through history until the time comes when the kingdom of God will prevail once more. Now, I want us to pick up one other aspect here with the theme of Babylon and Assyria working together. Remember, of course, how the kingdom of Israel had been divided into two in the days of Rehoboam. Well, as we've just seen, the kingdom of Babylon removed the kingdom of Judah. Who removed the kingdom of Israel? Why? The Assyrians. How appropriate. First, it was the Assyrians who removed Israel's throne. And then it was the Babylonians who removed the throne of Judah. This is simply the old kingdom of man doing its thing. Collectively, the Assyrians and the Babylonians ended the kingdom of Israel. By the way, actually, the symbology reaches even further than this. What has Babylon become renowned for in scriptural history? And the answer is the apostasy. Right from the time of Nimrod, we find that he actually founded something else. As well as his kingdom, he founded false religion with his wife, Semiramis, and her illegitimate son, Tamos, a claim that it was God reincarnated, Nimrod, who becomes a god. The, foundis, the foundation here of the theme of the goddess of fertility. We have the cult of reincarnation, which is then embodied in the Trinity. We have the celebration of Christmas. We have the worship of the mother God. We have the goddess of love. It all comes from Nimrod. It's all closely associated with Babylon. So by the time we get to the apocalypse, we have mystery Babylon the great, the mother of harlots and abominations in the earth. What does Babel mean? Confusion, false religion. But on the other hand, Nimrod was also a Gibor, a mighty warrior king, and the Assyrians became a mighty warrior power, military power. And in the fullness of time, the Assyrians and their invasion of Israel in Isaiah chapter 10 are used as a symbol of the ultimate Gogian invasion of the latter day, an invasion from which once again Jerusalem will be saved after mortal danger and destruction. In fact, these same two themes are seen later in Ahab and Jezebel, the military ruler and the harlot queen. This is the grand conflict of the ages. So this book, brothers and sisters and young people, is to reassure the saints, Israel, both natural and spiritual as well, that God has not given up on his plans. That God himself is in control. That the Most High does rule in the kingdom of man. This is not haphazard. It is not random. God has given the kingdom into the hands of whoever he wishes to use for the time. And ultimately, his purpose is going to be accomplished. That even though thousands of years might transpire, don't be alarmed. It's all part of God's immaculate plan for this earth. You know, brothers and sisters, young people, we of all people, we of all people should be very alert to what's happening around us in the world today. Because we are the people upon whom the ends of the world spoken of by the prophet Daniel are going to come. And if ever we wanted to see a witness, a testimony to this fact, then it would have to be this, wouldn't it? On the left side, we have the very well-known painting by Bruegel of the Tower of Babel. And on the other side, we have the EU Parliament, which was deliberately structured in such a way to show that there was a progression to take place in the building of a united, a united Europe. Now, there's been a lot of debate and discussion as to the similarity between these two particular images. Debate as to whether it was accidental or not. Well, you know, frankly, I don't really care whether it's accidental or not. The similarity just happens to be there. The kingdom of Babel trying to do its thing to establish its empire again. It's just obvious, isn't it? Well, even if that was accidental, of course, this was not. This was a poster put out by the, the European Union in 1992. It was actually withdrawn shortly after, after protests from the church. 
But you look at the similarity here between the construction of the kingdom of man again in this earth and the old Tower of Babel from Genesis chapter 11. What's it basically saying to us, brothers and sisters? We see the old kingdom of Babylon, the old kingdom of men. They're trying to complete the Tower of Babel and all that it stands for. Now is a time for us to be alert, to be watchful, because we do live at the time of the end of the world, the end of time that was spoken of so clearly by Daniel's prophecies. We have no time left, brothers and sisters and young people. And it's the stories, the incidents that take place in the book of Daniel that actually contain the excitation for you and I to stay alert and to stay awake. Daniel chapter one, don't let this world defile us with the king's food that it offers. Daniel chapter three, let's refuse to worship the kings and the themes of this world, even though we're ordered by it to do so. Daniel chapter six, let's keep praying resolutely to our God, no matter what the world says. Daniel chapter seven, the son of man will come and set up God's kingdom on the earth. You see, this book is absolutely remarkable. Can you see why it is, brothers and sisters and young people, that we of all people are the ones who will witness that reversal? We live at the, the opposite days, the end of the story of Daniel. We should be like those who, like Daniel, are described as being like the Son of Man, who gave himself to fasting and to prayer, trying to understand by books. That should be us, just like it was of Daniel himself. And in the words of the Apostle Peter, we have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto we do well that we take heed, as unto a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in our hearts. Thank you.